and thanks for joining today's conversation with Dr. Fatima Cody Stanford about obesity. In this episode, we discuss why obesity should be viewed as a disease, why it's so misunderstood, and how to support those living with this disease. I'm honored to be joined by Dr. Fatima Cody Stanford, an obesity medicine physician, scientist, educator, and policymaker at Mass General Hospital and Harvard Medical School. This conversation is the first of a two-part conversation. In part two, we'll be discussing weight stigma and weight bias, where they come from, why they're harmful, and how we all have roles to play in defeating them. Dr. Stanford holds an MD, an MPH, and an MPA, and is one of the first national fellows in obesity medicine, which she completed after residencies in internal medicine and pediatrics. She has received too many scholarships and awards to list. A few notable ones include the Gold Congressional Award, the Harvard Medical School Amos Diversity Award, and the Massachusetts Medical Society Award for Women's Health. Let's dig in. Welcome to Get Real Health. I'm your host, Dr. Chana Davis. This show cuts through the noise to give you science-based insights from real experts so that you can make smart, healthy choices. Dr. Fatima Stanford, thank you so much for taking the time to talk today. Thanks so much for having me. Now, I would love to just set the stage by hearing from you like what a typical week might entail. So what kinds of experiences are you bringing to this conversation? I think, I think you have a remarkable blend. That's why I'm, I'm letting you um, put that yeah. out there on the table. Oh, absolutely. So in my work as an obesity medicine physician scientist, I care for patients, um, usually from the age of two to about 90 with overweight and obesity. Um, I'm a research scientist, so I conduct clinical research um, on the topic of obesity, ranging from topics that are very highly clinical, like metabolic and bariatric surgery and pharmacotherapy, to more policy style um, issues and things of that sort. Um, I also teach um, here at Harvard Medical School, so I teach the medical students, the residents, the fellows um, about obesity, but also about health disparities, health Mm -hmm. outcomes. I serve as director for um, equity for the Department of Medicine for the endocrine division. I direct the anti-racism initiatives for the neuroendocrine unit. I'm the director of diversity for the Nutrition Obesity Research Center here at Harvard. Um, I'm the senior um, diversity, equity, inclusion advisor for the NIH surrounding all of the NORCs, which are the Nutrition Obesity Research Centers throughout the country. Um, And so that's just the things I can think of right this second. In addition to that, um, I'm a leader in organized medicine. So I serve as the chair of the Minority Affairs Section for the American Medical Association. I serve as the communications chair for the section of obesity for the American Academy of Pediatrics. I um, oversee the obesity efforts for the American College of Physicians, which is all of internal medicine. Um, And I'm a board member for the American Heart Association. So um, I can say quite busy. Um, And with regards to like lectures and things, I do on the order of about 150 to 200 a year on the topics of obesity, health disparities, race outcomes, and so, yeah, so I stay pretty busy. This past wow. weekend, um, I gave, I spoke at four different conferences on four different talks. So, you know, it just depends. Um, but I would say that, you know, the space is completely full um, and every day does not look the same. Every day is um, you have to look at your calendar to make sure you know where you're supposed to be yeah. and that you show up. <laughs> yes. So I think that's key. So narrowing in on the patient side of that, are you typically seeing someone for whom a general physician would have said you need to see an obesity specialist? Um, and so, yeah, who's your typical? How does that work? 
what kind of patient do you so, see? So yeah, so yeah. as as a, one of the first fellowship trained physicians in obesity medicine, after doing my um, residencies in internal medicine and pediatrics, I came to Mass General and to Harvard to do a three-year obesity medicine fellowship. So I did three years of training um, specifically to care for a patient population that has overweight and obesity. Um, patients can either self-refer, um, let's mm. say they've struggled with their weight and they want to see, I just as I do a lot of media, there are patients that may have heard me on, let's say MSNBC or NPR mm. or Sirius XM or whatever it might be and say, hey, I wanna see that person. Mm -hmm. I would say a large majority of patients are patients that um, I may be seeing their family members already. So I have a lot of families where I'm taking care of three generations uh, of individuals from the same family, mm -hmm. um, you know, the child, the parent and the grandparent, and maybe five total members. I think the most that I have in any family is five members of one family um, that I'm taking care of. Um, and so often if they see that, you know, one family member is doing well, they'll say, oh, you know, I see Dr. Stanford and then the other mm -hmm. family members come into the fold. Um, and so I would say that that's most, common, a common thread with someone that cares for people across the age continuum. Mm -hmm. And I really enjoy, you know, taking care of families because even though we may be using different treatment modalities for the patients, what I'm saying is going to be consistent. So the messaging mm -hmm. is the same. And for example, if we're looking at pediatric based, meaning child focused therapies versus like family focused, resoundingly, you know, those that are family based, those children always do better because it's not just looking at the child, for example, if you're looking at that spectrum, it's looking at the whole family, there's the strong heritability of obesity. And so mm -hmm. it's usually pretty complex. And so I find that that work across those generations is just supportive and lends itself to hopefully that next generation coming behind having less of an issue um, associated with obesity as a disease. Mm -hmm. What I'm hoping to dig into in the first part of our time together is just to help deepen the understanding of obesity as a disease. And so you've been vocal about using about the language that we use and the way that we yeah the way that we speak about and think about obesity. And so can you can you speak to that a little bit on, on the language and the way that we conceive of it? Absolutely. So I guess we'll start with the language since that mm -hmm. was the first question that you asked. Mm -hmm. um, I think that we have to think about how stigmatizing our language can be, particularly as we talk about obesity compared to other disease processes. Um, there are a few words that I think we should just cancel from our vocabularies to make sure that we're, you know, ensuring the highest level of respect for these patients. Mm -hmm. um, the first word I want you to cancel altogether is the word obese. Um, that's a label. Mm -hmm. It's highly stigmatizing. Um, the more appropriate way to say that using people first language would be a person with obesity. So they are not mm -hmm. defined by it, but rather they have that disease. Mm -hmm. And if you want to be more specific and get into the granular details of the severity of the disease, you could say a person with mild or moderate or severe obesity. Mm -hmm. um, and that brings me to the next word that I want canceled, which, which would be morbid obesity. Um, mm -hmm. You know, morbid implies that they can die, which is true, but you can also die from COVID. We've lost almost 600,000 people in the country in a very short period of time. You can die from cancer, you can die from heart disease, you can die from diabetes, and the list goes on. But why don't we call it morbid cancer, morbid diabetes, morbid mm -hmm. heart disease, any of these other things? Because the language that we want to use for obesity, unfortunately, conveys this this unfortunate stigma. So. The appropriate term, you know, for that category would be patients with severe obesity, right? That mm -hmm. would be the appropriate term to talk about the severity of the disease without actually adding stigma, you know, to mm -hmm. the conversation. So 
that those are some things that I'm really thoughtful about when I'm talking about patients that have this disease of obesity. Now let's come back to this idea of it being a disease. It was only in 2013 when the American Medical Association actually voted to acknowledge obesity as a disease um, in their House of Delegates meeting. And of course, that really was the impetus behind really a lot of wide scale attention, you know, the largest voice in medicine speaking to the fact that it should be recognized as such. But I think the reason why we have been reticent to acknowledge obesity as disease, especially in medicine, is because we just aren't educated about obesity, despite its prevalence, right? We know 42.4% mm-hmm. of U.S. adults have the disease of obesity, 18.5% of U.S. children and adolescents have obesity. And despite the fact that these are larger than any d- disease process that we'll ever tackle, we see it as a lifestyle choice, something that someone chose for themselves. And if they could just do whatever, name, you can fill in the blank, exercise more, eat less, et cetera, that we should all be exactly the size we want to be. And I think that we've learned that that's not the case. And the reason we know that's not the case is because their actual pathophysiology associated with the disease of obesity. We know that the hypothalamus in the brain is really important in terms of regulating our weight. It determines whether or not we travel down this pathway, which we call the anorexigenic pathway, which is the POMC or the melanocortin pathway in the paraventricular nucleus of the hypothalamus, or if we travel down the orexigenic as opposed to the anorexigenic pathway, which is the goody-related peptide pathway, which causes us to store more um, and to eat more. So these things are very tightly regulated by the brain and how the brain communicates with our adipose or fat tissue or large intestine or small intestine or pancreas and our stomach to tell us what to eat and what to store. And there are influences that may be driven by things that we do in this realm, but some of it is really actually in a large majority of it is beyond our control. Um, And I think as soon as we begin to really acknowledge that, then we begin, begin to actually tackle the disease. We put a lot of onus on the patient but we don't learn anything about this in medical school. We don't learn about it in residency or fellowship unless you mm-hmm. go to an obesity fellowship and they're few and far between. There's less than 50 of us in the country that are now mm. fellowship trained in obesity. So this is a, you know, a paucity compared to the almost yeah. 120 million adults that have the disease, right? Like there's, we now have almost a little over 5,000 physicians that are board certified in obesity by the American Board of Obesity Medicine that have taken CME courses, which continue with medical education courses mm-hmm. to prepare for the exam. Um, and that's great. We need, that's 5,000 is great, but I just said, you know, close to 120 yeah. million adults look at obesity and, you know, for kids we're, you know, in tens of millions, that's a lot of people. <laughs> I mean, we really mm-hmm. need a lot more people that are capable of handling it before you get to someone that specializes in the disease. Um, you can imagine the wait list for those of us that actually just care for patients with obesity can be mm-hmm. quite robust. And a lot of it has to do with the fact that there's no shortage of patients. This is not a rare disease. This is a very common, the most common prevalent disease of our lifetime. Why do you believe that obesity has become so much more prevalent in the last you know, 30 years or the trajectory of obesity that it's taken so dramatic? Yeah, it is dramatic because our bodies aren't meant to function in this environment um, that we're in. So we're in a highly obesogenic environment. And by that, people typically mean, oh, it's just what we eat and how much we're exercising. But that's incorrect. Um, It's changes in our sleep quality and duration, which, of course, affect how the hypothalamus regulates weight. Um, It's our globalization, which is really great for finances, but not great for our bodies. Um, When we deviate from our circadian rhythm, meaning when we're awake when it's dark, as opposed to being awake when it's light, that dysregulation causes our body to store more. Um, So globalization plays a a large part. Um, When we look at 
um, the gut microbiome. What we've learned is that the gut bacteria in those that are lean versus those that have obesity differ drastically. Um, so much so that we're doing studies where we're actually taking some of the gut microbiota in the form of feces out of those that are lean and placing it in those that have obesity. And we're seeing major weight shifts. Um, another major implication that I think we need to pay, pay attention to is medications that we as docs mm -hmm. prescribe um, are significant contributors. We think it accounts for 20% of the obesity that we see. Um, medications like lithium, Depakote, Tegretol, Celexa, Cymbalta, Zoloft, Paxil, Ambien, Trazodone, Lunesta, Gabapentin, Gliburide, um, Glimepiride, long-term insulin, long-term prednisone, beta blockers, just to name the ones I can think of just that moment. These are all hugely implicated in significant weight shifts in individuals. So we as docs are contributors to the obesity epidemic, and we often are unaware of our major contributions. One of the key things I do with patients is see if I can take them off those medications that maybe aren't necessary, or maybe I can change them to a more weight neutral agent so that we can reduce the burden of disease for them with making a very small shift. Now, mm -hmm. that's not always, um, we're not always able to do that. Maybe they do need that antipsychotic drug and that's the one that's most efficacious for treating, you know, whatever disease process they have. But for some, you know, often these medications may have been in place. They didn't realize that that was the trigger for when their weight began to increase and making those shifts, you know, in a stepwise fashion can really play a major role for individuals in terms of reducing weight in that individual. Yeah. So given the uh, multifactorial nature of this disease, how do you go about um, determining the optimal strategy for a patient? I mean, does it come down to saying what, which causes are most in play for you and then Right, I'm exactly. That's that's it. What's most in place for you. And so that's why this job is, is interesting, complicated all at the same time is that every single patient, unless they're identical twins, are going to be different. You know, what mm -hmm. they're going to tell me, their story, what led them to sitting there in front of me via telemedicine or in my office is going to be different. Mm -hmm. And so I have to listen to kind of some of these key factors. And then let's say I find out five things were issued. Maybe they stopped smoking, they gained weight. Maybe they're on medications that cause them to gain weight. Maybe um, they have a strong family history of obesity or whatever it is. I have to kind of take that in a stepwise fashion in terms of like, okay, are these things that I can actually address? Mm -hmm. What have they done in the past? What was quote unquote successful? And I put air quotes around that because um, I see success as something that's sustainable, not a short-term gains or, or loss in the situation. So a lot mm -hmm. of people try you know, diet after diet after diet and they're like, oh yeah, I went on X diet. I won't name any particular ones to not throw you know, one particular one, you know, at the, at the forefront. Um, but they lost, let's say 50 pounds, but then they gained 55 back. And so I say to them, I think of it like, you know, if you're in a class in school and let's say you're in, you know, class and you have 10 tests, you have to take 10 tests to, you know, pass the class. And let's say you get an A on that first test and you're feeling great about yourself, feeling excellent, actually, you're like, I got an A, but then you fail the next nine tests. No one cares about the fact that you got an A on test one. We care about what the overall grade was, right? Mm -hmm. And if you failed the next nine tests, that means you failed the course, right? So I want you to pass the course and I want that to be sustained over time. Whatever the knowledge yeah. you gain, I want it to be sustained. Unfortunately, with weight regulation and our set points, 
um, short-term interventions um, can lead to weight dysregulation, that weight cycling, which usually ends up pushing weight up in an incremental fashion. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I have your book here, uh, or probably one. I don't know. You've oh, probably written that. multiple books, but yes. here's one. Um, yes, I quite enjoyed it. And <laughs> yeah, one of many. Um, what was I going to say about that? Oh, yeah. So there was a chapter in there that sort of um, an opinion on different diets. So it has all these name diets, and there's a little discussion of each one. And basically, each one gets thrown out. And so then, you know, it's <laughs> it gets they all That's get thrown true. out ultimately for being um, too restrictive and not sustainable. Almost all, virtually all of them. So then, yeah, yeah, what do you recommend right. on a dietary for dietary strategies when just about every you know named diet is considered not you know, not yeah. a good path so the, the diet that I tell people to do is the one that they will do for the rest of their life. So a lot of people, they'll come in, they'll be like, oh, you know, I cut out all sugar and I cut out this and I cut out that. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, okay, well, how do you feel? Oh, I feel great. Okay. How long have you been doing it? Oh, I've been doing it for three weeks. Okay, great. Um, so if you, you feel great, you, you've just cut out like five food groups, which are all of them. I'm just, just making this up a little bit. <laughs> so do you, would you, would you like to do that? So like check back in 20 years, right? Yeah. We're in 2041. Do you, do you feel like that will be, well, well, I'm not sure. Okay. Well, okay. Well, let's listen. 20 years may be a lot. Let's come back to like five years, you know, yeah. in five years from now, if we go to 2026, 20, you know, how will you feel? You know, I, you know, I don't know. Okay. Well, let's bring it back. <laughs> let's, let's bring it back to mm-hmm. one year, you know, like, and so my, the reason why I keep doing that is because I want whatever they do that works to be sustainable. So if it mm. feels too restrictive now, imagine what it'll feel like in a month or six months or a year from now. And then let's, like I told you, I care about sustainability. Yeah. I want to know, hey, can you do this in 20 years? And yeah. for some people they're like, hey, like let's say they become, let's say vegan, for example. Um, my sister is vegan and you know she feels very comfortable. She feels much better. This is something she's sustained over a long time. So that's a good thing for her. I'm not vegan. Um, I don't know if that would be sustainable for me. So that's not the appropriate strategy for me. We're sisters, we're the same mom and dad, but our thoughts about that in terms of what works for us individually mm-hmm. are different. And it's okay um, for us to be different, but we have to feel comfortable where we are and have it such that it's sustainable. So I would say the best diet mm-hmm. is the diet that you can sustain for mm-hmm. you. Not mm-hmm. what did someone else do and what someone else did over there. Yeah. I don't care. Unless they're your identical twin, then I do kind of care because that may give us some clues on what to do yeah. for you. But other than that, which, you know, there are not a lot of, you know, identical twins. I mean, there are, they're there. But for the most part, most of us are individuals. And so we have mm-hmm. to pay attention to the person that's in front. So we have to personalize the treatment to the person. Yes. And I tell the patient, if I'm seeing, let's say, 16 patients in a day, which is a typical Thursday for me, I said, you know, it doesn't matter with the last patient, what I said to them or with the person that's coming after you. It's about you at this very moment. I, mm-hmm. That's who I'm caring about. You know, I, I'm going to think about them when I get to that next appointment, but it's mm-hmm. about you. Because often people want to say, well, well, what worked for such and such? And which I'm like, I don't mm-hmm. really care about what worked for them. Mm-hmm. I care about what works for you because that's really all that matters. And so, mm-hmm. I mean, not that, that those don't, people don't matter, but in the context of this visit, you are who matters. You are the star player. I tell them I'm the coach. The star player doesn't show mm-hmm. up. I can coach all I want, but if the star player doesn't show up, I can't, the game doesn't get played. So, yeah. 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 So what do you think are some of the most common misconceptions about the disease of obesity? I would say number one, this is your fault. 
um, people presume that when patients have obesity, that it's all something that they did wrong. And if they could just get themselves together, then everything will be okay. That is completely a fallacy. Um, I'm not saying that there is no um, contribution that we might have. Like, let's say you're one of those people that does eat fried chicken and pizza and cake all day. That's one thing. Interestingly enough, that's not most people. <laughs> most people, may they may have some of these things and maybe they have a stronger desire than others, but a lot of the people that have obesity, especially the patients that have had a long history, they've been trying so hard. If you watch them walking around in the streets, they always have a bottle of water in their hand. They're, they're trying to do the right things and their body is just like, oh, whatever, I'm resistant. So I would say misconception number one, it's the patient's fault. It's all something that they did wrong to have this disease of obesity. Mm. Um, another misconception that I would say is that if they still have obesity, that they must not be adhering to physicians' recommendations and guidelines. So year after year, they come to the doc. The doc says, oh, you need to just eat less and exercise more. And here's an exercise plan. And this is how you should eat. And they do that. And then they come back the next year for their annual checkup, let's just say. And their weight's the same, if not slightly higher. And then the doctor presumes, oh, they didn't do whatever. And I learned this as a resident. Um, I, I think I always kind of knew it, but I really honed in on this as a resident physician. I remember I was leaving, I don't know if I was leaving the hospital, but let's just go with that theory because that's normally where residents are. So I was leaving the hospital. I went to the grocery store. That was like, like maybe like about a block and a half from where I live at home. I'm running as I'm running in to gather a few items pretty quickly, I run into a patient of mine that I've been taking care of for the last three years. This was a, a woman, um, she was in her mid forties. She had severe obesity and she has her, her entire grocery cart is full. As I'm running in, I'm like, she's about to get into the checkout lane. Um, so she sees me and she's like, hey, Dr. Stanford. I'm like, hey, you know, we start talking, but this is like a perfect opportunity, right? Cause she's literally about to check out so I can see everything she's purchasing. So I'm looking at her, but I'm kind of like, I'm trying not to look, but I'm looking yeah. to kind of see what's going on. And she catches me. I thought I was being more inconspicuous, but I was not doing a great job. I would have filled that acting role. Um, and she says to me, because she, she recognizes it. And she says the following, see Dr. Stanford, I did everything you said. Her, her grocery cart was perfect. Like every single thing that we had talked about over the last three years, mm. it was like, I could have not done, she could have been my personal shopper. I could have just like taken that grocery cart and just wow. walked out with it, you know? And and so when she she basically is saying, look, look, I mean, there was, we, she didn't prepare for that. She had no yeah. idea she was gonna see. I'd never yeah. seen her yeah. there. Um, yeah. And it really was, I think, one of the biggest wake up calls that I've had, because you're like, when you see this person come in time and time again, there's no change. Mm -hmm. You presume, and doctors presume, and a lot of it's like due to our inadequate education on the topic, mm -hmm. is that they must not be following or adhering. Mm -hmm. And this was just perfect. I mean, her cart was perfect. It was pristine. It was mm -hmm. literally nothing I could have changed. Like, I could not think of anything I could have changed, you know, and she, a completely full cart. And so it shows you the power of the brain to defend its set point. Despite her modifications, her body was like, nope, we're going to be right here. We're going to stay right here. And it's that set point, which is frustrating, but it is very true. And it's inherent to some of the struggles that we see with obesity, um, particularly in those that have severe obesity. So how do you balance that, that recognition of 
there's some strong biology you're fighting against and it's it doesn't mean you're lazy and chowing whatever food all day how do you balance right. that with giving hope and and direction well because i say look we have evidence-based therapies that work so i always tell my patients i want to give them the best tool for the size of the problem and so by that i usually use i'm, I'm live in boston so i think about snow a lot <laughs> um so I will ask them, I say, okay, so let me ask you guys this. And I do this at the beginning of the visit, especially in patients that have severe obesity, and they will attest to that if they happen to hear this. I say, okay, so let's say we get a, you know, a foot of snow in Boston, which could happen at any given point. It can even happen you know, in the middle of April. It's happened before so many years that I've been here. I said, so I asked them, what's the appropriate tool for the city of Boston to use to move the snow out of the way? And they'll be like, of course, a plow. I'm like, okay, well, I think that's reasonable. So I said, well, why not use like a teaspoon? And they're like, Dr. Stanford, that's ridiculous. You're not gonna get the snow out of the way with a teaspoon. I said, okay, all right. Well, this teaspoon is kind of small. What if we get like a punch ladle? You know, it's a little bit bigger, but what about using that? And they were like, well, I mean, slightly better, but like, it's really gonna take some time. I'm like, okay. And then I leave it there and then I go and do the visit. And then I come back at the end and I asked them, so what do you think is the best tool that we should utilize? And let's say a patient that has severe obesity. And they'll say, oh, yeah, I think we should try another diet. And I'm like, okay, well, but you just told me earlier that if we, we have snow, it's a foot of snow that you, I shouldn't use the teaspoon, but you're telling me to use a teaspoon for a plow size problem. And then sometimes it clicks. I would say it almost always clicks and there's a resistance because like, they answered it. Um, and so I said, well, why do you want to use a teaspoon for a plow size problem. And so we know the best treatment for severe obesity is metabolic and bariatric surgery. Mm -hmm. Even if you have Medicaid here in um, the state of Massachusetts, it will still cover your surgery. So if we know that we have the tools available. Why not use the appropriate tool for the size of the problem? And that gets people thinking, even for my older patients, patients that I've sent to surgery at the age of 70. And they tell me that it was usually that analogy that made it click for them. They're like, why are we using a teaspoon? I've been using a teaspoon for the last 50 years and it hasn't worked. It just mm -hmm. won't, we'll never get anywhere. Um, mm -hmm. It's not that we'll never, I shouldn't say we'll never, but they've tried it for 70 years and it didn't work. So maybe we need a different strategy. Mm -hmm. And I think that's, that's the key. It's like, yes, if you're coming in, you have severe obesity, you've never tried anything. That's one thing. But by the time you usually make it to a specialist in obesity, you probably tried several things. And that's typically the case. I ask patients, what have you tried? Have you tried a few things, several things? And usually it's several. Um, and they can rattle off like a laundry list of things that they've tried. And I said, well, so why would you want me to go back and do the exact same thing that you've done for the last 25 years? Like mm -hmm. what would make it different? Well, you know, well, maybe, maybe I just need to do better. That's what I often hear patients say. Well, mm -hmm. you know, there was once where I had a piece of cake, like three weeks into it. I'm like, really, do you think that, is that really the thing that shifted you, mm -hmm. you know? And it's, and it's a record because they've been told that this is all their fault, right? That's what mm -hmm. they believe internally and often are their own worst critics. So I'm having to undo that deleterious thought process that has been ingrained mm -hmm. within them, sometimes within their families, mm -hmm. definitely within the late, you know, press, for example, mm -hmm. I have to undo that. And I am undoing that years into the process because that has been ingrained, especially if they started to to struggle with their weight in childhood, that's been ingrained for their whole life. They mm -hmm. believe that they did something wrong and they just couldn't do it at something good enough. And so they just need to do better. Yeah. 
I'm sure you're familiar with the National Weight Loss Registry. Of, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Um, so what can we learn from, I mean, why are those, why are there those people who are the exception, seem to be the exception and lose substantial weight and keep it off? Do you know what's, what's different about those that? Well, there's different phenotypes, right? There's yeah. different, yeah, people that respond to different modalities. And so my, what I say for patients is about finding what works for you, right? Like mm-hmm. it's not a cookie cutter. Um, but for the national weight loss registry, the key component for those is about weight maintenance. And so they Mm -hmm. have a robust exercise plan. We know that physical activity on average is not great for weight loss, but it is phenomenal for weight maintenance. And so when we look at those individuals, they are very aggressive and robust with their exercise. And, you know, most of those people have been in the registry for 10 plus years. Mm -hmm. And so they've been able to use that exercise to keep them where they are so that they can maintain it. Keep in mind, several people in the registry still have obesity, um, but they're able to maintain a certain degree of weight loss and, and maintain it over time, which is how they're able to be, um, in the registry. But everybody responds to different things. I may, let's say, for example, start one person on a medication that's supposed to be great and they do well. And maybe they lose 20 pounds in a month. That's phenomenal. That's not what they're Mm -hmm. expected to lose. Maybe they're expected to lose three to four. I may try the exact same medication with someone else with obviously a different response Mm -hmm. and they lose like 0.5 pounds. Mm -hmm. And so then it's like, it's not, they did anything wrong. They took the same medicine their bodies responded differently. And so, like mm-hmm. I said, it's a, a, and this is what can be frustrating is that there is often a lot of trial and error to find what works for them. Mm-hmm. Maybe it is diet modification, if that's it, that's great. But like I said, by the time they get to me, that's typically kind mm-hmm. of, we've done that many times. Maybe mm-hmm. it is like a regular exercise plan, but a lot of times, like I said, tried, done and sustained. You know, some of these people are fitness instructors Mm -hmm. and they're still coming in with you know overweight and obesity Mm -hmm. so Mm -hmm. it's about finding what works for the person and and consistently recognizing that obesity is a chronic disease so that even though it's working right now we may need to modify that strategy um to you know capture whatever changes their body is going through at that time let's say a woman hits menopause major shifts happen Mm -hmm. adipose or fat distribution changes due to hormonal changes associated with menopause they may have to change it up it's okay um, but it, don't lose track. Don't don't go away. Stay with me so that we can adjust quickly, as opposed to coming in ten more years after menopause happened, and then you're wondering why you gained sixty pounds. I'm like, well, mm-hmm. well, that's it started happening then, and they're like, oh, well, let me let me try to do again on my own, and then you come in ten years later, and then we have a much bigger problem on our hands, which just yeah. makes our work even more challenging. So to wrap up this part of our conversation, because I want to make sure we have time to also dive into yeah. weight stigma, I wondered if you have any words of advice for those um, who are loved ones of someone that is dealing with the disease of obesity and how to best support them. So first of all, don't blame them for their disease. I would say that often family members are um, significant contributors to the negative feelings that patients feel about themselves. Um, If you've seen that they've continued to to struggle and you want to support them, tell them that there are those of us that are certified to care for them. Um, All they have to do is go to the American Board of Obesity Medicine and you can actually for free search for a provider in your zip code, for example. Um, If you're trying to find someone that you think would be able to help your family member, 
make sure they feel comfortable talking about it with you. Maybe they don't feel comfortable. Maybe you said something that was insensitive and you don't recall that, but they remember. They remember anything that's said that's been said to them and they particularly remember it from those people they care most about, which are their family members. Mm -hmm. I would say even more than those that are external. So make sure that you, as in the person, the family member are not a contributor. And I would say the last thing I would say to do is to take the weight implicit association test. So Harvard has a free test that you can take. Mm -hmm. um, and it's the IAT, but for weight specifically. And you can see if you actually have biases um, regarding weight status, um, you might be shocked at seeing how biased you are. If you look at the results, this has been taken millions of times. Um, and it's interesting to see what people's um, perceptions are, even when they believe they don't have these perceptions. So mm -hmm. start with self. And if you recognize, whoa, I am really off the charts. I had no idea that I was so biased then you can begin to work on yourself. And let me tell you, your family member, the one that happens to have obesity, they will notice the shift and change in you as you try to make adjustments and then may confide in you a bit more for some additional assistance. Mm. Um, of course, I like my book, Facing Overweight and Obesity, which is available on Amazon, um, written by physicians here at Mass General Hospital and some other contributors. And so I uh, tried to be thoughtful about, you know, all kinds of topics in that, including mm -hmm. weight bias, including media portrayals mm -hmm. of, of patients with overweight and obesity. Um, I really tried to include that. And then some really heavy, dense, obviously, medical stuff, which can fill kind of, you know, like all of the obesity-associated diseases or the primary ones and things of that sort. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you for this um, insightful conversation. I think it's really important that we think differently in, about obesity. And I'm glad you're really... Absolutely. Um, leading the way in doing that.